Hello everyone, welcome back to the Early Education Show. It's episode 33. I'm Liam. I'm Lisa. And I'm Leanne. And we're all together again. Yay! How is how is everyone? Hang on, hang on, hang on. We are not quite together, guys. <gasps> Lisa, where are you calling I'm us on in an from? Island in the middle of the Pacific. I'm on a very tiny island in the middle of the Pacific. But I should say I'm there for work, not for you know, not for fun and games. I'm there um, I'm on Norfolk Island and I'm there to try and help their services become part of the national quality framework and become approved services so that the citizens of Norfolk Island can get childcare benefit and childcare rebate for the you know, eight months or so before <laughs> they both disappear. That's good work, well, well Lisa. Done. Good job. Well done. <laughs> but well, I should say it might make my sound quite funny because internet here is very intermittent and today hasn't been a good day for the internet. Oh, well, we'll see how we go. We, Lisa, you're going above and beyond the call of duty, I think. Uh, call again for us tonight. And so far, you're the... What you, are you talking about, Liam? Lisa loves to spend time <laughs> with us. There's nothing she'd rather be doing. This is her favourite place. <laughs> well, it probably fits Lisa. It probably it, it probably fits one of us being in a slightly unusual place. This is going to be a slightly unusual episode, and I'm going to head everything off by saying this episode was my idea, and it's either a blinding bit of genius or it is the worst idea of all time. It'll yeah, be genius. It'll Liam, be genius, but like we, we won't know until the middle of it. But what I thought we'd do is we so. Uh, as we mentioned in the last, uh, I'm sure it was the last episode, it might have been the episode before in the news list, uh, Kate Ellis, the Shadow Minister for Early Childhood uh, Education, is currently running, uh, well, is currently uh, consulting with the sector um, on Labor's, so what the, so the policy Labor will take to the next election on a range of issues, and she's opened that consultation up uh, to anyone, basically. So there's a discussion paper on her website which has 26 questions which uh, can be sort of used as guides for people to put in a submission. So we were sort of going to put in an early an early education show submission, and actually, Leah, I don't know, did, you were away last week, we actually volunteered you to write it, but um, we've... Oh. Yeah, I did hear that. Yeah, yeah. And she hasn't done it. I know. Come so on, it's appalling. So what we're going to probably thought? Well, actually, hang on. We're a podcast. Why are we writing submissions? And it's actually no fun if we don't get Lisa to do it because she's the one who's had to write fifty million of them, and um, and and probably would be happy if she never had to write a submission again. So unless it's making her life difficult, I'm not particularly in the mood. We had to be part of that process. <laughs> so we thought, well, look, we're a podcast. We're going to do an audio submission to this consultation. So that's what you're going to be hearing tonight. So we're not going to be doing a news list. We're not going to be doing recommendations. We're going to be going through the 26 questions that Kate Ellis has put to the sector and trying to answer them in a relatively quick and concise way that means we're not here for two hours or so. But Again, this 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 may be the worst idea I've ever had, and we won't know until we're about an hour in. So, I think it should be like a, a game show where when you ask a question, we go, "Nah, pass." <laughs> yeah, can yeah, we exactly. just do hiss to some of them? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> that that can be the comment. Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah. So, well, Lee Stradian, I thought what I might do is just quickly read from this sort of intro that Kate Ellis has put in her media release. I won't read the whole thing because it's, um, I think her media release is actually longer than the consultation questions she's put in there. But um, I wanted to read a couple of, of, of key things that sort of shape the, the background of the, of the consultation. 
So she says, every Australian has a stake in our early childhood education and care system. There are now decades of research (laughs) which shows effective investment more than pays for itself, from better education and employment outcomes to reduced crime and lower social welfare welfare costs. In addition, there are significant workforce participation benefits when parents are enabled to return to the workforce or increase their hours of work. You know, we can take it or leave that. Uh, 90% of a child's brain development occurs in the first five years. This makes the early years the most efficient and effective time to invest in the human potential of our country. Yes. And one of the best ways to fulfil our moral duty to improve the life chances of every Australian child. I quite like that bit. Good job. I like that. Moral duty? That's... That's good. I'm skipping ahead a bit and I'm going to say, however, reform has stalled. The government's recent changes do not address key systemic issues. There is nothing to deal with waiting lists in some areas and oversupply in others. There will be no limit on out-of-pocket costs for parents, only caps on government assistance. Professional development and quality programs have been cut. Most worryingly, the changes will strip back access to early education for many children, including the most disadvantaged. Um... And that's yes, boo. And look, and that's probably enough in terms of a background. So the other thing, uh, if you haven't had a chance to listen to uh, this episode before, is to go back and listen to episode eight, where we actually uh, recorded um, some discussion and chat after Kate Ellis's address to the National Press Club, where she sort of outlined and sort of began this reform consultation process. So it's worth going back then to get, I guess, more of a view on. Uh, both Minister uh, Shadow Minister Ellis's and Labor's, I guess, where they're coming from for this. But I guess that's enough of an intro. We may as well leap in with question number one. So if you'll all turn to your guides in front of you, uh, we're starting with a, with, a, with, a, with a question that fits into its own section, which is reform goals. And the question is, what should the 10-year vision for Australia's early childhood education and care system be? I'm going to go with, and we actually actually said to make sure we do this properly. I think we're always going to go Leanne first, then Lisa, because you missed out last week, Leanne. Is that okay? Oh, thank you. <laughs> that What's is the... very nice of you. Thank you very much, Liam. I'll be um, brief on this. I think that I actually have a seven point plan. Um, <laughs> I've just been watching House of Cards, so I think that that. Um, uh, you know, there's always points, seven-point plans and all those sorts of things in uh, House of Cards. Okay, so instead of getting uh, distracted, I think the idea of a 10-year vision is one that um, everybody would sign up to because quite often we're working on very short-term visions or sh- short-term policy planning. So I, I love the idea of a 10-year vision that we could have um, that would actually – the sector could actually commit to as well and keep um, keep – Whichever government is in, um, or whichever whichever party is in, to those goals. So, the seven things, and I think that Lisa will probably have at least two more than that. Are, <laughs> yeah, every child has a right to early childhood education for at least two years before school, with all of the other things that hang off that about um, disadvantaged children and you know children in in the higher in quotation marks, need categories, um, having more pay parity for educators, uh, educator and teacher quality focus. So there's commitment to professional development um, for all all teachers and also a very focused birth to eight years program as opposed to the birth to 12 years that we seem to be falling into in terms of teacher training. And enriched 
National Quality Standard and an Enriched Early Years Learning Framework that's up for proper review, a proper research agenda for the early childhood land, uh, for the early childhood agenda, I suppose, a, a proper research agenda that's planned out, planning that is uh, all about putting the right places in the, the right, putting the right number of places in the right spots and then incentivised uh, incentivized opportunities for providers to establish, to be established, whether they're not-for-profit or whether they're private not-for-profit. And that's my seven things. Gee, you're not demanding or anything, are you? No, I was going to say only seven. Would... That's all right. Yeah, it's only seven. I was, I was trying to find ten, one for every year, but I think that kind of was what I wanted. <laughs> Anything to add, Lisa? Yeah, pretty much the same, but I'm going to put mine succinctly. I just uh, want every Australian as opposed, child... As opposed to what? <laughs> oh, no, I think yours was quite succinct, but I'm just not going to use as many words. I just want every child from the ages of naught to five to have access to the highest quality early education and care in the world delivered by educators remunerated in a way that befits their experience and the skill and the the um, importance of what they're doing yay well said both fantastic approaches um I don't have really? it. I don't think. Well, I don't think I have what anything to add. What about yours? I don't think I have anything to add to those two. I think you've pretty much covered anything. I think I'd just be rewording what you two have said. So, um, I'm happy with that. So let's let's move on to question two. So this is the beginning of a section of four questions, which is about putting children's development first. So again, we're going to go to you first, Leanne. Are there particular cohorts of children who are being let down by our current system? Yes. <laughs> Lisa? <laughs> that was succinct. <laughs> yes, of course, there is. <laughs> Aboriginal children, children in rural and remote areas, low-income children, children at risk and girls. Yeah, I think I would also add... Uh, probably um, refugee children yeah. and uh, children with additional needs as well. Yeah. But I will say I think every child is being let down by the lack of security to our um, current system and the, the lack of future focus. So I'm going to say every child. Yeah. Oh, these are all good answers. Um, see, I'm immediately now I'm going to change the way I... I know. How, how I said I was going to go to you first every time, Leanne, because then that... That maybe doesn't leave Lisa much to say or be at the end. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pick and choose as we go along. It's gonna be a nice surprise for you all as we go along. Oh, well, maybe well, you, you should go first too sometimes, I think, Liam. No, look, I'm I'm happy answering the questions because you two are far more cleverer than me. But um we're gonna go no, we're not. question three. Um now in some of these questions, if you have the if you've seen the discussion paper, there are examples. I'm not gonna bother going into those because it'll just add to our time frames and we can come up with our own examples. Um, but question three, and Lisa, you're going to be up first with this one. Are there ways that the federal early childhood education and care budget could more effectively focus on the needs and development of Australian children? Yes, um, it could, first of all, ensure that all children have access. So it could improve on accessibility because that's what 
you know, Australian children need is access. And it could also do it by um, focusing on... Oh, actually, I'm not so sure if I've got a second reason there. <laughs> oh, hello. <laughs> do you want to do you want to leap in and Miracles rescue? Miracles happen. Do you want to leap in and rescue Lisa Leanne? Anything else you want to add to that? No, no, that's okay. That's yeah. okay. I don't. I don't want to fill the airwaves with the. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I only think the only thing I would add is increased funding. Um, for and we're going to cover this, I think later on in one of the other questions. But obviously for the national partnership agreement, so recurrent, set, and more funding for that, and also just to say that we you know we we're always defending the red tape out there. More funding for a sequel as well, because I think there was that fantastic article um, in the in the Fairfax papers a few weeks ago, which is that you know a sequel's total operational budget is going to be dwarfed by the advertising campaign for the Jobs for Families package, which. You know, it can't be good for ensuring quality across the sector. So I think that's the only other key things we're going to add. Um, question number four, and Leanne, you're going to be first cab off the rank with that. How can early education outcomes be improved for all children? Make a good policy, resource the policy, stick with the policy and make sure it's a an appropriate policy for children. Fantastic. You're all being so concise. Anything to add, Lisa? Yes. Stop money from exiting the system into the hands of for-profit providers and get rid of the need to do documentation. Oh. 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 I don't know if I can make it into the official early education show (laughs) submission. Can we reshape that or can we put another opinion forward about that? So this is the challenge. Do we have to negotiate? Because this is the official early, This is the official show submission. Do we need to be on the same page on this? Okay. Well, I, I don't think I could sign up to getting rid of documentation. No. I could sign up to, I could sign up to getting rid of useless documentation. Yeah. And cl- oh, clarifying and streamlining as documentation requirements. But no, we have to assess children's learning, Lisa. We can't have this argument now, but, but we have to assess and document children's learning. <laughs> that's a that's a minimum standard. Sure. <laughs> I think you're putting in that in there just to be provocative, aren't you? No, I'm not. And the reason I'm not is because last night in the middle of the night, stuck here on Norfolk Island, I read a thread on a Facebook page where people <laughs> were talking about what documentation was required, etc. And it was a Facebook page that's got a lot of Cert 3 educators on it. And basically, none of them knew why they were doing it. And I just went, oh, this is so sad. Can I have a a two-second interjection on that one about that that particular issue? So recently, um, I was involved in a survey around documentation and the outcome that people identified, what the reason they were uh, documenting most for was for, for parents. And the smallest percentage documented for themselves to reflect on children's... Which is the only um, purpose. On children. It's in the law and regulations. So I I think, like, I I completely understand what you're saying, but any documentation should be about reflecting on children and reflecting on practice, and it should not be for um, that external, uh, you know, process. So. Okay, that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> Let's have a, have a whole thing on it one night. We do need to I'd do really it. really like to 
as the person that knows nothing about early education <laughs> from the you know, education <clears throat> perspective, I'd just like to go, why? Huh? I don't understand this. Okay, we, can, maybe... we can do that, can't we, Liam? Absolutely, we can... absolutely. I look forward to it, actually. Um, can I, the only other thing I had for this one, just we've, we've segued away, so for those who have forgotten, <laughs> the question was how can early yes. education outcomes be improved for all children? Um, I would just quickly say that, I think we'll probably say this a few times on this show, uh, high-quality early childhood education can only be delivered by high-quality and highly-valued early childhood educators, so funding of professional wages and uh, full professional development for support for educators. Otherwise, it's very, very unlikely yeah. that we'll meet this question. <clears throat> yeah. All right. I've right. already I've forgotten who we are. I think, Lisa, I think you're going to go first crack at this one, which is should children have access to an early learning entitlement? So I guess that they're referring there to a, a, a specific minimum standard or minimum number of they hours. They absolutely should, but we really need to be careful of the way that that's brought in. So, like, at the moment, in under the National Partnership for Universal Access, every child is theoretically entitled to 15 hours of education and care, and what that has meant is that in some areas people have had to deliver 15 hours even when families in that area don't particularly want 15 hours. So it needs to be absolutely, you know, clear that it's an entitlement, not an obligation. Yeah. Anything to add, Leanne? Uh, I think the 15 hours has definitely been problematic, but I do think we need to understand exactly how much is useful. Um, And I think that we also need to be sure that that's communicated and understood by everybody. Yeah. I think the only thing I'd say, this might be semantically splitting hairs. I just don't know if I like the word entitlement. I don't know if we see as, I don't know if we see primary and secondary education as an entitlement. I think we see it as a right. Um, a right. Yeah, yeah I, I would agree. prefer right. But that look, that's probably not answering the spirit of the question. I think... You know, where this is done really well is there is, uh, you know, enshrined in law, there's a base level of entitlement or right to access. So I think that can generally only be a good thing, but I think only as a stepping stone to, to better things. Um, we're doing well. We're cracking on. All right. Next section is more accessible early childhood education and care. And the first question in that one, which is going to go to you first, Leanne, um, how could the early childhood education and care system be made simpler for parents to navigate? Uh, for a start, it, it could be at no cost. <laughs> so it's very simple. I think everybody would, then, everybody would then navigate their way around the system very easily. But we we need to, obviously, the, it's the back end of that where this, the system is is simpler to navigate means that it's it's actually just one. It's just early childhood education as opposed to a system. And it is it is not delivered at 25 different levels of, of policy and, and so the, the policy needs to be made simpler, the implementation of that and then the communication on that for and families. It's so hard to answer this question because really the answer is change the entire system. This system yeah. can't be navigated. Yeah. Any, any, it's, it, it, can't, it can only get more yeah. complicated. It's a tough that's one. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Anything else, Lisa? Yeah, make one level of government responsible for it, either state or federal, and make 
the rules that apply to one sort of care apply to all sorts of care. In fact, don't have sorts of care, just have a a system where parents can go and use it for as many hours a week as they want, you know, and don't call it preschool or long day care or out of school hours care. It's just, you know, early education and you just rock up for the hours that you need. Yeah. I think the only thing I'd add to that is that there is, yeah, that that needs to be linked very clearly with the minimum um, numbers of hours to ensure the best start for all children. All right, let's move on to number seven. And I think, Lisa, you're going to have a first crack at this one. What action should government take to address accessibility and waiting list issues? They should look at their census figures, know how many children there are, not five, guarantee every child a spot, and then make make every local government responsible for delivering those spots with Commonwealth government funding. If the local government couldn't, uh, you know, couldn't um, supply it through uh, their own means or through contracting not-for-profit providers, then give them the option of then bringing in private providers to do it. But they are the ones that are responsible for delivering it. Oh, hang on. What country does that? Mm, Finland. <laughs> oh, yeah, they've got a pretty good system. Yeah. Um, yeah. Any other ideas for this one, Leanne? No, that's great. I think that's, that's a – you've obviously thought about that, Lisa. That's a very good answer. I don't think I have yeah. anything to add <laughs> either. Um, all right, question number eight over to you, Leanne. Should government incentivise oh, – that's such a good word – incentivise new places being created in areas of need and what might that look like? So this was a big plank, I think, from Kate Ellis's press, uh, press club speech. She had some really interesting things to say about the government getting involved in this kind of thing. Yeah, I, I – it's. I think there's no easy answer to this, and I'm not sure that the that the plan is is the right one either. So I'm just just saying that. But I also don't have another one in its place. The only thing I do know is that there was much better planning in the past, and it was based on all of those um, figures and the census and the a what was kind of equivalent to the AEDC and. And that needs to come back into play is, and then in terms of incentivising with proper planning, we'll only see those places being, being actually allowed to um, exist in the, in those places. So I, I think it's very hard to incentivise new places with our current approach because you're only going to go where you can make the money. Yeah, so it's hard to incentivise without really at the end of the day just putting more profits into, mm. yeah, private private company mm. yeah lisa might have a better answer for this one because she's probably worked on more of those things yeah but it's quite simple you don't need to incentivize when you're not relying on a market yes yeah. if you're yeah. not relying <laughs> on a market you're relying on planned provision and if you're relying on planned provision then you create the places where there is need gee that was hard wasn't it <laughs> All right, uh, question number nine, and this one will be for you, Lisa. How could local places be guaranteed for children and parents? Um, you give every child a right to a place and you know how many children are there you know, in the places. But I actually don't think that parents 
it's not about parents. It's just about yeah. guaranteeing places for each child. Because you know what? Our country knows how many children there are. I'm in a country or I'm in a part of Australia right now where they actually don't know how many children there are. But in Australia, give or take a dodgy census or two, we do know <laughs> how many children there are. So, you know, we really just have to look at how many children there are and make sure there's enough places for those children. Absolutely. Yeah. And we, the same way we do for school. I was going to say, we do this. This isn't actually that complicated. We, we, we already do this. We just don't do it in this space. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Precisely. All right. Question 10, and this one will be for you, Leanne, to start with. What information should be made available to providers to assist them in better meeting the needs of parents and the community? I think that there is already a lot of information that's available to providers and I believe that this is a an integral part of of running a centre, whether it is a not-for-profit or a for-profit or whatever it is. It's not about marketing, it's actually about meeting the needs of those families and that information is available through local communities, through the AEDC, through um, the census, through the iProfile. There's so many different ways to understand that, but then nothing, nothing can take the place of reaching out to the community and understanding that community and spending time in the community. So I actually think there's plenty of information available. I think it's it's about having time probably more than anything else to to investigate that and to understand it and to be a part of the community yeah i agree there's actually no there's a huge like australia actually does pretty well in this in terms of demographic studies what i think is that we all all of that stuff tells us that the market-based model doesn't work we actually need as as, but no one wants no one wants to hear that so the answer screaming is in the face no one wants to hear crazy about this question is and so many of the questions in this section actually predispose us to a market-based model. So if you didn't have a, a market-based model, then it wouldn't be up to providers to better meet the needs of you know, parents in the community. It would be up to the government to support the development of services in areas where the community and parents needed them. But I, I, I don't... I think that it, it's important for the for the service to meet the needs of parents and the community. And I, I do think that you can only understand that if you have that experience in the community and use use the community networks and use the skills that have been learnt through um, through training and and professional development should that exist. And so in in doing that, it's it's actually but that takes time. I think that takes time. So yes. I, I remember think the, this question is in the context of accessibility. So it's in the question of supply and demand. It's not about actually meeting the needs of your community. It's about yes. meeting, you know, no, making I, sure I, there's enough places. Yeah, I. Well, it, you can't make places. You can only fill places, can't you? Well, I think that it's requesting that, you know, providers, you know, create places for children. If they only just knew where there was an undersupply, then 
the market would fill that. Yeah, that. I don't think I've read the question that way. Have you read it that way, Liam? I think I, I've seen it to be a little bit different to I that. I think I'm leaning more towards Lisa only because of the what is the very next question, which we might go into and we can maybe answer. The, maybe we can either go back to the question we've just answered or just answer this one. But the next question is uh, question 11. What lessons should be learned from the flexible options that have been trialled in recent years? So I think... I think what they're looking at with the previous question was, yeah, I think it's focused on accessibility, but I think it's also at uh, operating models. So I think how can we be more flexible to meet the needs of uh, children and families? That was probably my read of it. But again, this stuff's all open to interpretation. But um, Well, okay. Well, all right. If you want to go with that and I'll go with something different, I don't mind. Because, <laughs> because what I will say is, that if all you're doing is meeting the needs of this group of families in your community and there's a whole other group over there that you have not identified, then to yeah. me you're not actually meeting the needs of the community. And I think that the only way that you can do that is by being a part of that community. So maybe, I, I mean, I could be, I'm happy to yeah. say I'm reading this wrong. Well, we can read but, it however we want, Leanne. I think, uh, I mean, the, the, they're all good <laughs> points. You. Yeah, they're all good <laughs> of points. Of course we can. <laughs> Yeah. So in terms of (laughs) lessons learned from flexible options, so I'm assuming they're talking mainly here about, you know, the prestigious nanny trial on the flexible early childhood places. Lisa, I know you have some good thoughts on this one. Uh, Look, I think we've learned primarily that parents would prefer to explore options for care at night time that involve the child being in their own bed. So, you know, offering 24-hour care isn't something that families necessarily want, even though families may need care outside of standard long-day care hours. They don't want it to happen, you know, in somebody else's house or especially not in a centre. Yeah, I think the, the two big ones are the nanny trial, and I can't remember the name of it now, but there was the uh, sort of flexible, so there was funding for services to stay open longer, in particularly rural, rural regional areas with a focus on shift workers. And they were both utter failures, both were barely taken up by anyone, let alone, you know, um, entire communities. And this, I can't remember if I actually ranted about this on the podcast. I used to love going on a rant about this a few years ago, which is there's ne- <laughs> <laughs> there's never any doubt. So there's this huge assumption in the, sec- in the community, in the sector, that early childhood doesn't work for shift workers. There's huge people that can't... And, and I always have said, I don't. That's not true. There's there's no there's never any data to support that. It's a couple of, I will and and I will ta- absolutely table. There will be families that struggle with you know the the opening hours and early childhood centre, but they are in an overwhelming minority. And the way and the way to support those children and families is not through bending and stretching and already ridiculously overstretched early childhood sector, but coming up with specific options that work for those families, which is exactly what you said, Lisa, which is usually in home and usually, you know, not educationally focused. So the big lessons from those two trials are that that early childhood education and care is not the solution to those issues. That, I mean, that's and it for me. If I can add something, because not surprisingly, I've looked at this question differently again, um, <laughs> in that... There, and you cut out there, so I can't. I'm not really sure whether you mentioned family daycare because family daycare has always offered some flexible options in terms of the. Did you say that, Liam? Because I couldn't hear at one stage. Uh, no, I think I just I mentioned the sector okay. in general. Yeah. 
So family daycare has always um, been involved in flexible options, um, particularly for shift workers. But and and there's also in-home care, which is something different again, and that's existed for a long time and has worked well. But the other the other part of it that I would um, say is rather than what lessons, I think it should be how lessons should be learnt because you've said that we've seen from the last two trials, but there were trials in the 80s of, um, there was 24-hour care in the 80s. And, and did they show the same thing? Yeah, exactly the same thing. I mean, some services did in hospitals, um, did actually work quite well, but eventually it was exactly as you say, Lisa, children, people made different arrangements because children wanted to be at home in their own beds or families wanted their children at home. So different arrangements were made. And I, I don't, I think we've still got maybe a couple of 24-hour um, care services, but inevitably they are, um, they don't actually meet budget and they're, they're very difficult. So when it says um, what lessons, I think it's how lessons, we should actually just remember how many times we've trialled these things and make sure that we don't <laughs> do it again. That's good. Well, I mean, I can't comment on any trials uh conducted in the 80s, Leanne, because I wasn't born. Very sorry. I know. Oh, I know. <laughs> Liam. I know. I know. Look, I was... I was Are you only... really that young? <laughs> no, I was you born in 1985. 1985. Was born oh, yeah. Just laying with us. But, I mean, Lisa, you and I, we were in our 50s in the 80s, and so... Um... <laughs> yeah? All right. Okay. It was my, it was my well, job... I can't to... remember. I'm doing it for we were doing so well now we've stalled and the last the last two questions are taking 10 minutes no 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 it's my I I was meant to keep us on track which has not gone well it's like the lightning round on a game show we're just gonna have to we're gonna have to do our best bit so uh we're gonna move on to another one really really quickly oh fantastic so we're moving on to a new section which is more affordable early childhood education and care and the first question in that section is question 12 are there effective ways to improve affordability for Australian families which are not being utilised? Banning for profit childcare. Yeah. Clawing, clawing, back <laughs> the, um, clawing back the money that's been made from rorts. Rorts. I still don't have a sound effect. Sorry, I'm working on that. It's a rort sound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think really that's, I mean, more, more government funding directly to services that aren't tied to... Uh, you know, the family's workforce participation. I mean, really, it's spending more money. The governments don't really want to hear it, but spend more money and spend it better. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Uh, Sounds good. Beautiful. Next question, question 13, and Leanne, we're going to go to you first. How could government cap the out-of-pocket costs of parents, not just the government subsidy? I think what Lisa said before, um, but also um, put a yeah, just put a cap on fees, and uh, that would also put a cap on profits, which would mean that people would get out of the market, which would create an, a whole other problem. Um, I think this is a very very difficult one. Yeah, because so, I, I wonder if the unless Australia- we change, yeah, yeah. No, the, unless want- we change the market, or unless we we subsidised to a higher level. I think this is hang quite... Hang on, a, hang on. There's oh. a much, much, much more simpler way. It's <laughs> what I said. charge for early yeah. education. There is That's that. Right. That's an obvious one. That's what I said. I was referring to your previous comments. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Refer to Lisa's previous comments. I do think that's a... 
if we're looking within the current system, I think Australia is a particularly fiend. I, I, this, I could be completely wrong. I haven't looked into the detail, but I think Australia probably has one of the biggest variations in terms of metro and rural regional sort of remotes. You look at you know, a lot of the European countries are less, I think, diverse in terms of um, uh, differences in those in, just geographically in terms of where people are accessing this stuff. So I don't know how you come up with you know, a single hourly fee cap, although the government seems to think they have, that meets, you know, a service that's in, you know, the fifth floor of a sky-rise tower in Metro Sydney and one in, you know, rural, uh, you know, far north Queensland. Yeah. I think the other is you can't and just make it free, people. Well, it'd be like saying, um, because it's a risk of, you know, us expanding out on this question, it'd be like us saying you have to put a cap on a pair of jeans that you buy. Or a cap on a, a, a dinner that you buy out. It's a market. Therefore, it's yeah. impossible. Unless you wind back the market. You can't, can't have it both that. ways. Yes. <laughs> All right. Question 14. Is there a way to avoid unreasonable profits, including in the childcare-linked property sector? Lisa, I think you're probably going to have some a good, succinct view on this there's, one. There's two parts to this question. The first one, is there a way to avoid unreasonable profits? Yes, make profit making illegal. Secondly, in is there a way to avoid unreasonable profits in the childcare-linked property sector? Yes, make local governments responsible provi- for providing the land to provide early education and care within their local government area and fund them to do that. Yeah, beautiful. I don't think I have anything to add. No, that's fine. Well done. Good. All right. Last question in this section, question 15. Are there areas of wastage where current investment could be better used? So this is in the context of more affordable early childhood education and care. I'm taking that as a comment, Lisa, Leanne. Do you have Do you have anything to add there? Oh, I, I just, I do think yeah. that, that all of the avenues for I know we joke about rorts, but all of the avenues where rorts can be, you know, I think there just needs to be better accountability and there needs to be a, a realistic a realistic perspective on where those subsidies go. Rather than, rather than saying that um, the, the subsidies are going to um, families, yes, they are, but they're an in, they're actually a business incentive, and I think we need to be realistic about that and say, yes, there is area, there are areas of waste there because we've created that market, and therefore it's not going to the right places. I know that's probably not the right answer for that question, but that's the one I'm going to give. <laughs> Fair enough. I like it. Typical politician: don't answer the question they've asked; answer the question you wish they'd asked. Well, I just, I just think that we keep saying that, that there's this sort of rhetoric that um, early childhood education is funded to this huge extent and the billion, you know, all of the billion dollars is, is rolled out. But in actual fact, that is only to incentivise business to establish yeah. services and to discount um, fees because they're – because – Families couldn't possibly pay the fees that are required for high-quality yeah. early childhood education. Look, I'm going to get on my insane high horse and offer a completely useless answer to this question in terms of actual useful policy development. But I'm going to argue if there are the children who most need and most would benefit from early childhood education aren't accessing, I'm arguing it's all wasted. What's the point? Yeah. 
Yes, good, good point. point. Yep. Good point. Very good point. Yeah. I think we're all... I'd also say that, you know, like, we know that $1 billion exits the system every year, a lot of that into shareholders' profits. You know, I'd happen to call shareholders' profits wastage. So I think that current investment could be used being re in, in you know, part of a reinvestment yeah. strategy, not an exit strategy. <laughs> That's a good catchphrase, Lisa. I like that. All right. <laughs> This we're gonna oh god we're gonna we're gonna struggle with this section to keep ourselves to, to short answers but we will just have to do our best. But um, uh, can I, I, I I will give a short answer to oh. this one. All right, so we're gonna start with the new section sector structure and reform, and the first question in this one is question sixteen: Which early childhood education and care systems around the world stand out as best practice, and why? The answer that I'm going to give to this, so I'm going to jump in and and this is like an essay a, question. A, a so we're gonna mark you well, on this one, Leanne. Well, the only thing I would say is that it is actually pointless to consider what is the best system in any part of the world because it is oh, out of good the, answer. because it is out of the political context of our own country. So yeah. there is no point in saying Finland's fantastic and we should all be like Finland. Certainly, some of the principles we should we should look at and look at it in a comparative policy perspective, but we just cannot say that this is what we should have here because. It is pointless. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yep. You know what would be another way to word this, which is which early education and care system uh, could stand out as best practice? Australia's could, but we choose not to. Yes. And and you know what? Why do we choose not to? Because we have things like Medicare. We have things like the NDIS. Both of those are best practice in their delivery, in their inception, in their funding, in their everything. Can we please just put yeah. early childhood well, education even, and care on yes. that list? Even look, even include even staying within the sector, the national quality framework is viewed internationally as one of the best. And I know um, Professor, you know Ted Malouche has actually said the best international, you know, sort of national regulation system for early childhood education and care. We just don't back it up with proper politics and proper funding. And and committed implementation. Yeah, absolutely. All right, next question, and we'll go to you first, Lisa. Are there different models of delivery that should be investigated in the Australian context? I think the answer to my my answer to this question is you can't, like, the Australian context is so different from where I'm sitting in Norfolk Island, which is part of Australia, to... You know, the centre of Australia to Sydney to Melbourne to Canberra to Perth, you know. There's different models of delivery for each unique community. That's what we need, not one just for the Australian context, for each unique community. Yeah, there isn't one Australian context is the problem. Yeah. 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 yeah, no, I don't think I have anything to add. I mean, you can look at, you know, this specific sort of, um, you know, other, um, this there's, there's question, actually, the next question is on integrated approaches. I think Australia could do better on that kind of stuff. There's some interesting models in the ACT that started off really well, but have sort of petered out, which is the early childhood school model, where there's a uh, birth to five component alongside the first two years of primary school. But all this tells me is we, we, we have this huge mishmash of models that we could even draw on within Australia. We just don't 
commit to anything and we don't see what what's the best for the individual context within a community yeah exactly as you guys said mm. All right, uh, question 18, and we'll go to you first, Leanne. How could integrated services for children and families be supported and incentivized to improve outcomes for children and families? And Leanne, I wonder, did you want to give maybe just a really quick broad brush definition of integrated services if people aren't familiar with that? that term? Uh, yes, but I don't think there is a broad brush um, <laughs> definition of integrated services trap. because I think, well, I think it's it's pretty similar to what um, Lisa's mentioning before is about a different model for every community. And when you have an integrated service, it, it usually the people who work in those services are absolutely phenomenal and amazing and do provide that integrated service in a community context. So that might include supported playgroups. It might include um, healthcare opportunities for children and families. It might include specific programs that work to the strengths of that community. So there's no one model for integrated for an integrated service. It does look um, in a more focused way at families who may be disadvantaged, but it actually uplifts the whole community. And I don't know about that word wraparound service trial. What is that wraparound? Yeah. That really bizarre what the, what it says there. So it says as an example, permanently implementing the lessons from wraparound service trials. But that said, integrated services have been around for many, 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 many years. And every time they pop up and they they think, okay, we'll we'll fund a new model of integrated service and we're going to put a building down. And it's not actually about the building; it's actually about the service that operates out of any any place. So I know mobile services that are integrated services. So I think that we should, I think every service should be an integrated service. So we'll move on to the next question, which is question 19. And I think we're going to go with Lisa first. What should the sector mix be in terms of operation and ownership? What role should the government play in implementing this? I think we've kind of covered this, but do you want to quickly smash us over the head again? Yeah, the government should purchase back every um, for-profit service on the basis of their occupancy rate at the time and not their land, just the actual service. And then all future education care services should be not-for-profit, community-based or council-run. I'd love to see the uh, budget analysis of that. Yeah, I know. I was thinking exactly that. Should we? Yeah. Doesn't mean it shouldn't happen. Doesn't Peter, mean it's not the right thing Peter to do. Peter was but... always used to say it's too late to unscramble the egg, and I just reckon you know what, I want a government bold enough to unscramble the egg, and I reckon the Labor Party could be bold enough to unscramble the egg. Mm. The Labor Party that developed the NDIS, the Labor yeah. Party that you know the NQF. has steadfastly you know stuck to Medicare that. Yeah, that developed the NQF, yeah? Like, who could think you could every get every government to agree to increasing the qualifications of educators and the number of educators? Somebody was bold there, yeah? Let's have some boldness now about ownership. Absolutely. Mm. All right, question 20. This will be for you, Leanne. Are there models of government directly purchasing places that would be effective at leveraging public investment to achieve better outcomes for children and parents? That's my favourite uh, bureaucratic have sentence we, so far. Have we already, have yes. we already talked yeah, that one over, so. though? Yeah, I think we've, we've, we've covered that one. 
Um, let's go straight into 21. So are there jurisdictional issues between okay. local, state oh, and federal government which oh. are impeding the effectiveness of our early childhood education and care system and how might these be addressed? I think, Leanne, you get to miss out on the last one. So you want to do this one? <laughs> What's that? You can do this one because you missed out on the last one. Oh, well, I mean, I think the answer is a big yes for this. And uh, it's about the way that our our historical development of early childhood has happened. It's about constitutional divisions between education and care. It's about um, planning models that were developed and then taken on by local government. And some have kept them and some haven't. So, yes, and I think that the the way that these could be addressed is to, we've already answered that, is by actually having one level of of government dealing with um, with this, we've got you know we've got a national system of law. We've got a national, we've got a lot of national stuff. So maybe that's the answer. Yeah, and I think we can at least yes. say in the early childhood education and care sector, at least we can say we're not alone on this. So this is what's kind of you know making yeah. the health system difficult. It's what making yeah. the you know the primary and secondary school system difficult as well. It's just these endless yeah. li- li- you know different levers of government involved. And, and remember when we were looking at some of the the um, writing around the different systems and when it came to Australia and the levels of government, we there had to be an asterisk That's with right. a huge <laughs> paragraph that described how it all works. So we are the only country, you know, in the, the only country that actually manages their early education this way. And clearly we this is one area we don't want to be different in. Absolutely. All right, question 22. Is reform to planning, development and provider approval processes needed? Do you want to go first, Lisa? Yeah, I want to say that this is a bad question because so much of this whole section in sector structure and reform pre-proposes that there needs to be tinkering around the edges rather than a wholehearted changing of the system. You wouldn't need provider approval or planning or development changes if you just said we need enough early education care services for every child and they all need to be free and they all need to be, you know, um, supply needs to match demand and delivered by government or community-based services. Absolutely, mm. yeah. <laughs> We're getting succinct as we go along. But um, oh, the next question now, Leanne, I reckon Lisa would probably love to take the first crack at this one. Would you be happy to let her have another go on the next one? <laughs> yeah, go <for laughs> just, I want to hear Lisa's response to this Cause, one. Because it's not like she's ever said it before. <laughs> and have we just done whole episodes on this? It's very possible. <laughs> so question 23, are there problems with the market or predatory practices threatening viability, choice and diversity, and how could these best be addressed? I don't think it's, it's not a problem with the market, is there, Lisa? I think we're fine. No, no, there's absolutely no problems with the market. It you know, it really doesn't matter that some people are coming in on short-term basis just to make as much money and get out. It, you know, there's no problem with the fact that, you know, um, there's people running childcare centres whose, you know, absolute commitment must be to shareholders rather than to the children in, in their care. There's no problem with the fact that people are making decisions about how and where to build childcare centres, not on the basis of where they're needed or, you know, um, 
uh, where children might most benefit from them, but because, but uh, you know, instead out of the most money that could be made. So no, I don't think there's any problems with the market. There's no predatory practices, and you know, choice and diversity. You know, the market delivers choice. Did you detect a hint of sarcasm anywhere in there? Mm, there was, there was a touch. There was a touch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we we probably don't have anything to add to that, do we, Leanne? I think we can no. let Lisa's no, that's, statement that's stand. Thank you. All right, and then the last question in the structural reform uh, section is question twenty-four: Are there any instances? Are there any instances? Sorry, of sharp practices, gaming, or predatory behaviour threatening the quality, diversity, and viability? Of service now, I've got to say I'd never Did heard Lisa... the term sharp practices until about oh. a month ago. Do we need to define this for people? Yeah, well, yes, please. So my understanding, and I will say this, this was explained to me not that long ago, and I'm probably going to get it wrong. So sharp practices is is a common term in sort of I think sort of financial sort of systems, so in a sort of fraud context. So it's it's practices that are not. And uh, previous guest host Carl Hessian is going to kill me if I get this wrong, but it's practices that aren't technically illegal um but they are also not they're 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 not reflective of the spirit of the law or the regulation that's been um that 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 has been implemented so does that make sense so it's kind of they're barely they're barely barely legal yeah yes i've I've just done a quick a quick search on that and there are there are words like trickery deception (laughs) deceit duplicity dishonesty all of all words that don't belong in early childhood education Absolutely not. Um, so I think the answer to this is yes, isn't it? But but, it's, but that's that's yeah. going to happen when you have this system. Hmm. And and like that's what drives me absolutely insane about the development of the new subsidy system, in that so much of it is reactive and responsive to what is currently seen as sharp practices and gaming or predatory behaviour. And all they really do is fill one set of holes and then those people that have that bent will go and find a whole other set of holes. And so more and more compliance comes into the system rather than saying, where does this actually come from? So if we look at, you know, uh, for-profit um, training organisations. We close down, you know, you're not allowed to offer free computers for every person that enrolls. You're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do this. Whereas the real problem is you shouldn't be making money out of training people to do jobs. Yeah. Am I beginning to sound like a yep. broken record? No, you, you, you're the, the um, Australian Socialist party <laughs> <laughs> all right so that's fine we're, we're on the home stretch we've got from two... each according to their ability no. <laughs> <laughs> we're on the home stretch man. we've got two more questions uh, please can i do the next one uh, leanne absolutely so this oh, is this this one gets you. a section all to itself which is supporting yes. the early education workforce so this is question 25 and it says how could government most effectively address the issues affecting the early childhood education and care workforce over to you leanne. i actually i actually do wish that this was an essay question <laughs> but it's not so i'm going to be brief first of all take out Productivity Commission Inquiry 2011 and read every chapter and then uh, look at every element of that and 
implement all of the recommendations. The Productivity Commission that's, inquiry, Leanne. That's right. Yes, that was yep. that one in 2011. Uh, proper planning for our workforce, which is actually dealt with in that 2011 inquiry, so that we understand who we will need in the future and every state to, because we're still working in states, to put together a proper workforce plan instead of the silly, billy ones that they did put together. We need... Uh, money to go back to TAFE to, for training rather than RTOs. You've just mentioned that, Lisa, about the RTOs because yep. they're, they're in quite a mess. Um, we need to be sure that we have university courses that are focused on birth to eight years, not the mixed up primary um, early ed ones that we seem to be getting more and more of because they're not focused enough on early childhood pedagogy and early childhood childhood education. We must have pay parity for early childhood teachers um, and we must have a proper plan for continuing to pay teachers well once we have that pay parity. We have to ensure that we've got proper entry requirements for um, universities and TAFEs so that people who are um, choosing to go into early childhood, that is their first choice and they are the absolute best that we can um, put forward to children. And we need a proper professional development, a really strong professional development plan that continues to um, support the developing workforce. And we need really fantastic leadership um, training and education for the whole sector. Bravo. Perfect. Can I can I add two things to that? Ah! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you better have to. I just think that the the first thing the government needs to do, or any gov any political party that wants to be considered for government by the early education care sector, is to put this question at the top, not at question 25 yes. as an afterthought. Very true. So that's my first point. And the second one is that so many of those things that Leanne has said that I agree absolutely must be needed would not be needed if early educators were if early education care services were funded to pay early educators and early childhood teachers the wages that they deserved. If you did that, then they could fund their own PD. If you did that, they could, you know, they would demand that there be specialist courses in not, for not to fives. If you did that, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Pay is crucial to all of it. Absolutely. It is, but I don't think it's just, I don't think all of those things are solved just by funding services. Mm, and mandating increased pay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but when we're talking about university courses, I don't think that the, the push can come from services about about what's in those courses in terms of the, the structure that we have around higher ed. Yeah, okay. Yep. Cool. All right. Last question. And I'm sure none of us will have any thoughts on this last one whatsoever. Uh, so this again is a section all to itself, which is implementation of the government's childcare changes. And the last question, question 26 is, what implementation issues are expected with the government's childcare changes? And how could these concerns be best addressed? 
What do you has think, this Lisa? Ever, has, has this ever been addressed in this podcast? Uh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, having a quick look, you could just refer to episodes 18, 24, 25, and probably 23. But apart from that, no, I don't think okay. I've touched on it. I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you a few things. Put current before the words government. So <laughs> don't pre-presume that the current government is going to be the government because... You're the Labor Party that are asking these questions. Surely you intend to be the next government and then it'll be, you know, the childcare changes, you know, put in by the former government. And I think that the concerns could best be addressed by absolute consultation with the sector and not the sort of wishy-washy consultation we've had in the last few years. Yeah. I mean, I might be cheeky. I think we... In all seriousness, we've we've covered this topic in a in a number of other episodes, and particularly episode eighteen, we devoted a whole episode to it, and then episode twenty five to the aftermath. Um, I just so the the question is, what implementation issues are expected? So we've talked a lot in in our in our um in our previous episodes about the expected issues, so particularly affecting budget based funded Indigenous services, um, how how this will affect educators if the operating model switches to uh, sessional care. What worries me most about the Jobs for Families package is the unexpected stuff. So I've spent a lot of time, I work for an organisation in an operational role. I'll be, you know, involved in implementing this package at the organisation I work for. I just died. There are huge parts of it. I just go, I do not know how this is going to work, particularly around the childcare subsidy. Liam, you don't have to worry I've heard today that PricewaterhouseCoopers have been, you know, are going to be the ones responsible for um, educating early education I care services about how to implement it. So really, you know, like there's a major consultancy firm on your side, Liam. They'll help you. They've mm. been funded by the government to help you. Yeah, look, it's better. Look, PricewaterhouseCoopers have done some good uh, reform policy work in this space. I don't know how they're going to go operationally implementing this stuff, but um, how could these concerns be best addressed? Repeal the legislation and start again. Can we, can we yeah, say that? That's, I'm happy with that. I'm happy with that. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. We reached the end. Come we didn't... up with a better policy. That's right. <laughs> We reached the end and we didn't we didn't keep everyone too long. We're basically at a normal episode length for us, which may be too long for some people, but Hi. we're happy with it. So I guess, you know, we, we commend this submission to Shadow Minister Kate Ellis and the Australian Labor Party as they go down the track of reviewing their early childhood policy for the next election. We hope it's been useful and we hope it uh, leads to a better outcome in terms of uh, the next election and and what might happen if, if Labor form government in the next election. I think we can say if it goes well, this, this podcast will be single-handedly responsible. I think we can say that, <laughs> can't we? I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that. So, can, I, can I just, sorry, can I just add in something? Sometimes I think people think that we're all Labor, Labor Party members. Yeah. Oh, I'm and happy I to confirm I am not. Because, you know, I'm not a Labor Party member and never would be and never have been. Uh, Leanne? Um, Lisa, I could not actually say I never have been. Oh! <gasps> Oh, now the truth comes out. But are you at the moment? <laughs> no. This is getting very personal. <laughs> yes, getting <laughs> <is> personal. <laughs> oh, 
No, I can imagine an 18-year-old Leanne believing that they were the way, the truth and the light. Um, no, I wasn't 18. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. But I do think that that's important that people know I think, you know, all of us spend a lot of time communicating with people on social media that actually mm-hmm. are members of the Labor Party. And, you know, I can see why some people would be members of the Labor Party, but I just want to you know, make it clear that, yeah, you know, none of us are currently members of the Labor Party. I, I think it's not so much, I mean, I will, will say that I think that the point is that um, our our perspectives are informed by a lot of years of engagement in the sector and a lot of thinking around children's rights and around what is good policy. I think we've all, all of us have got some policy background and and um, and I think that when it comes down to it, we just want to see really fantastic early childhood education that is actually about children's right to access and engage in high quality early childhood education and in the end we actually don't care who does it so long as it gets done in fact we'd prefer if all parties did it that's right and signed up to it and said yes we're going to commit and then the sector will get behind whoever is holding government to achieve that goal sounds wonderful the end the end isn't it (laughs) yeah because that's really that's that's really all all we want don't we? Am Absolutely. I sounding desperate? No, sounding this, this sounds like our executive summary. That's fine. We're just doing it at the end of our submission. And and we'd also like to just, you know, absolutely thank the Labor Party for, for giving, you know, all of us this opportunity to say what we really want because that is true consultation. Acting Absolutely. on it is part of it, but, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I guess we'll find out if they accept podcast episodes as submissions. But hopefully so. Fingers crossed. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so, Liam. All right. We've 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 kept everyone. We hope this wasn't a complete disaster for people. We hope it was helpful in some way. We'll do a quick wrap-up because it's been another long episode. But you can track down the podcast at a couple of key places online. You can email us at earlyedushow at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Early Edu Show. If you want to support the podcast, we would love to have your support. You can give us a rating or a review on the Apple Podcast Store. That helps bump us up in the ratings and means more early childhood professionals and colleagues and supporters can find the show. Uh, you can also now financially support the show at Patreon, which is P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash early edgy show uh, that support is really valuable for uh, you know sort of keeping the, the fun things we can do rolling on and doing some more exciting things later on if you're having trouble finding that address you can also just head to our website earlyeducationshow.com and just click the support the show tab uh, you can also find all of us individually on twitter mainly you can find me at liam mcnicholas and me at lisa j bryant and me at leanne m gibbs three And until next week, we will be back with a far more normal episode, I promise. And Lisa, you might have returned from your tropical island paradise. It's bye from me. Subtropical. And from me. And from me. 